We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier, and I'm here today with Nasir Gami, who is a professor of psychiatry at Tufts Medical Center and director of the Mood Disorder Program there. Uh, he is an expert in uh, bipolar and mood disorder and has, also has training uh, in philosophy and public health. And we're very happy to have you joining us today. Thanks, Ev. It's nice to be with you. And on a personal note, um, uh, Nasir is an uh, uh, old mentor of mine, so I, uh, I feel very uh, glad to be able to, to have you here today. Thanks, Ev. I guess to, to start, uh, given your experience with uh, working with bipolar disorder, I was wondering if you could just uh, answer uh, one of our participants' questions about um, what's the difference between made, um, manic depressive illness and bipolar disorder, and um, is it just a name? No, actually, there, there's a big difference. Um, manic depressive illness was the name that was used from the late 19th century until 1980, and it tended to refer to people with more severe symptoms, often uh, delusions, being frankly psychotic. But more importantly, it reflected that uh, what the diagnosis was used for people who had depression and that was recurrent, mean happening over and over again, as well as having mania. You didn't actually have to be manic to be manic depressive. And in 1980, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder was used to make it such that you had to be manic to be diagnosed with it. And if you only had depression, and even if it was repeated, it was just called major depressive disorder. So manic depression actually means what today we call major depressive disorder plus bipolar disorder. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so the treatments that were developed for um, manic depressive disorder uh, would be then uh, treatments for both bipolar disorder and depression. That's right. When lithium was developed in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't used just for people with bipolar, what today we would call bipolar, people with mania and depression. It was used for people who had just recurrent depression, and it was shown very effective for prevention of their depression, even with no relationship at all to mania. I see. Um, so uh, one of the things that I, I guess I wanted everyone to know is that you've written a couple books. Um, one book is Concepts of Psychiatry, which is about the conceptualizations of mental health and diagnoses. Um, and, an, and another more recent book, A First Rate Madness, um, which is about uncovering the links between leadership and mental illness. And, and one of the things I've noticed throughout your writing is that you often refer back to the manic depressive disorder um, and, and other types of ways of describing mood disorders. Um, that are, are maybe not as uh, current as the bipolar disorder. Um, and so I, I guess I wanted to understand that. 
Right. Well, and that change that happened in 1980 with DSM-3 was a major change. And we've been living with the concept of bipolar disorder since then. And people who've grown up in that era, like me and like you, um, had no personal experience of, of other ways of thinking about it. And so in some ways, we all take it for granted. The reason I use the older terms is to keep reminding people that there's 100 years of history before this, and there are other ways of thinking about these mood conditions. And in fact, some of the research that that we're doing these days supports the older view more so than the, the newer ones. So you think that, that some of the older views uh, could be better for people to, to understand themselves and right. yeah, to understand fact, treatment? A lot of what I was trying to describe in the first-rate madness, for instance, was how um, having depression uh, and then having mild amounts of manic symptoms like just in your temperament, so, so-called hyperthymic temperament or cyclothymic temperament, um, produces somebody who can have all sorts of strengths and positive attributes. Um, and it's not because of the depression just uh, uh, per se. It's also because of the mild manic symptoms we have. But we don't diagnose those mild manic symptoms currently in our current systems and our textbooks. We ignore it. We call it nothing. We just call the patient's major depressive. And we ignore the fact that the mild manic temperaments like hyperthymia are there. Um, and the research indicates that this makes a difference. It's associated with having mania in your family, with uh, bipolar disorder, we would call it, but it's technically not bipolar disorder. So it's more like the old manic depressive concept that one can have all sorts of variations of very little mania, a whole lot of mania, no mania, very little depression, a whole lot of depression, no depression, and, it's, and there seems to be that these variations all re- may reflect one big illness rather than multiple different illnesses. And, um, you know, when I talk about someone like Franklin Roosevelt or John Kennedy as being hyperthymic, that seems odd to people because it's not in the textbooks. But there's a lot of things that are true that are not in the textbooks. And, in fact, ideas like that are not in the textbooks, but they're very old. They've been around for almost 100 years. And it seems like when you, um, when you use those terminology to it, it very much normalizes the dimensions, the dimensionality of, of mood. Yes, um, Yes, that's another idea that, that is behind a lot of what um, I've been uh, writing about, and that is that people, with DSM-3 in the last 30 years' approach to psychiatry, we've been trying to categorize people and shove them into one group or another. You're bipolar or you're not. You're major depressive or you're not. And not only is there this spectrum in between of mild symptoms that I just mentioned, also there's people who have neither one of those but just have the mild symptoms as part of their temperament. And uh, they can be a little bit depressed. We call it dysthymic, a little bit manic. We call it hyperthymic, a little bit of both. We call it cyclothymic. And then the, the, the dividing line between people with those temperaments and those who have the more severe depression and bipolar is not sharp. They seem to more or less fade into each other. And uh, this dimensionality is something that's, that's there in, in the biology and the research and in, in practice we see it. But in our, it's not in our textbooks, and so we, we try to sometimes pretend as if it's not there. And um, I want to write about it to describe how it really is there, and it's, it's relevant. So it, it almost seems like um, bipolar disorder and that kind of categorical diagnosis, either you have it or you don't, could lead people to, to, um, to somehow, um, could lead to stigma, I, I guess, um, when it, right. seems like, when it seems like what you're saying is that it actually is a, a spectrum um, of, of uh, symptoms. Right. I mean, I think it, it, the hard part here is to hold two opposite ideas in our head at the same time. 
And that is that there is a difference between being normal and having severe mental illnesses like severe depression or bipolar disorder. So I'm not saying it's all the same. On the other hand, the, the differences at the extremes um, are, uh, is one, that's one aspect of it. But when you move from the ex- one extreme to another, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of milder symptoms. And so basically we go from, there, you know, in the population, there's a lot of people who are completely normal, don't have any mood symptoms of any variety. Then there are some people that have a little bit, these abnormal temperaments of cyclothymia, dysthymia, hyperthymia. And then there are people with more and more symptoms until you get the more severe, uh, de- severe depression, bipolar disorder. And it's one one big gradation, I think. But at the extremes, certainly the, you can tell that there is a big difference between having severe mood illnesses and not. So I'm often asked the question, how, how do I really know if I have bipolar disorder? Because a lot of people who I've worked with, you know, someone has told them that they have bipolar disorder. Um, uh, how, how do they know? Well, it, it, it does make it this way of thinking about it that I've been talking about is uh, does complicate matters because one can have a little bit of bipolar disorder, a mild amount, uh, a moderate amount, or a lot. And especially when it's a little bit, when it's mild, it can be different, difficult to distinguish from being normal. But certainly when it's more severe, the way that one knows is because the symptoms are really um, extreme and they're very noticeable. There's a big change in one's uh, behavior and in one's functioning. So the symptoms are sleeping a lot less than usual, having lots of energy, being much more talkative, much more active, doing a lot more things, having rapid thoughts, uh, and often, not always, engaging in impulsive risk-taking behaviors like spending, spending sprees, sexual indiscretions, driving impulsively, traveling recklessly. And you have to have three or four of those symptoms for a few weeks for the official definition of mania. And then it alternates with periods of depression, which is the opposite, low energy, low interest, no, uh, no activity, a lot of sadness, often suicidal thoughts, lasting for weeks on end. And then there can be periods when one has neither of these states, and it's rather normal. So in classic severe bipolar disorder, it's actually relatively obvious because you're normal, and then for weeks to months, you're really hyperactive, overactive, or really underactive and sad. Um, and those clinical symptoms um, make the diagnosis, and, and in the severe and classic cases, it's not, it's not uh, very questionable. It tends to be relatively clear. Okay. okay. Um, and, and what are the positive symptoms that are associated with, with, with having bipolar? Because you talk about that in some of your books. Yes. More recently, in, in the first rate of madness, I really started to get into that, um, and I think this is relevant to the issue of stigma. Um, the positive symptoms are that in depression, there seems to be increased realism and empathy. And in mania, there's increased creativity and increased resilience to stress. Um, and this is based on... What do you mean by resilience? Well, uh, most of the research has to do with trauma, like traumatic experiences. And about 80 to 90% of people who experience severe trauma don't develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the major predictors of not developing PTSD after a traumatic experience is your underlying temperament or personality. And specifically of the temperaments that seem to be most protective, hyperthymic temperament, meaning having mild manic symptoms as part of your temperament, is protective against developing uh, PTSD after having trauma. People seem to bounce back from the traumatic experience without much anxiety and depression, uh, and they were able to function. In fact, sometimes they function even better. They get stronger, as Nietzsche once said. And, uh, and there's a paradoxical effect where the traumatic experiences 
let them handle future traumas even better. I think you referred to your book in your book as post-traumatic growth. That's right, which and I actually it, liked a lot. Exactly, and in the post in the PTSD literature, there's increasing work on this topic, so called resilience factors, so that you see that some people certainly do worse after trauma develop a lot of depression and anxiety symptoms. We call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Many people have, you know, a brief period like that perhaps, but in general, they bounce back to their usual baseline, their, their normal functioning. But there's some people who uh, bounce back in a, in a way that's different and seem to actually grow from the traumatic experience in terms of having some psychological strengths or some abilities that previously they, they didn't have. An example might be someone, for instance, who has cancer and then recovers from it, and then it lives their life differently than they did previously. Uh, it's almost like a, uh, a learning experience or survivor's, survivor's wisdom. Right. And I think everybody per perhaps is able to do that to some extent, but what's interesting is that some people are able to survive and grow from it with a certain wisdom more than others, and temperament and personality seems to be a... a feature that may predict that. Um, I assume just as you're talking that, that this, this isn't for childhood-related traumas, it's just more for adult trauma after no. the personality is formed? Or? Well, I think it's certainly there's more negative impact of childhood trauma than adult trauma and less positive impact, but there still is some positive impact in some studies of childhood trauma, although there's, it depends on how you define trauma. The, the less severe the trauma and the more chronic um, sometimes the more benefit. Uh, there's a lot of research, for instance, on children of poverty during the Depression. That's a different kind of trauma. It's not a one-time thing, and, and it's not physical or sexual, for instance. Uh, but there is even research on, on children with more severe trauma, traumatic experiences, uh, who in adulthood aren't diagnosable with PTSD and seem to report some psychological growth from the experience. There's also research on uh, leaders, statistical research, uh, which when you look at traumatic experiences like death of a parent or loss of a parent and then as predictors of great leadership, uh, among great historical leaders, there is a high prevalence of childhood traumatic experiences, uh, whereas among um, other leaders who aren't viewed as great or as great, there's less of such a prevalence. And statistically, it's even been, been suggested there's a difference. I see. Well, so some people would say that they developed a personality <clears throat> during their childhood and, and, and their you know, um, adolescence and young adulthood, um, but perhaps you're saying then that actually it's based more on temperament that you get even before. That's right. Uh, even Tem before you, you, uh, yeah. you, leave, you leave the womb, is that it? Right. I think the way I look at it uh, is personality is the combination of temperament, which is biological and, and, and at least half biological, half genetic, but really ingrained with biology and very early childhood experience, it's pretty stable by age two, three, or four. And there are studies that show that temperament traits like neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, these are a couple standard traits. When you studied in infants and in toddlers, age two or three, restudied at age 18, those same individuals, uh, there was very little change in the temperament. The temperament's mostly biological and rather stable. Can, can, can you just say what those were again, just for, so everyone could... Okay, neuroticism is, uh, the is an anxiety trait, basically. We all have some score on that. Most of us are in the middle. We're a little anxious, but not a lot. Some people are high, some people are low. Extroversion is another one, which is how outgoing you are versus how shy you are. And then openness to experience is a third one, which is how curious you are, how much 
you try new things versus more being more routinized. Um, there are other ways of defining these, but these are some of the standard traits that are studied in about 50 years of personality and temperament research that have been shown to be pre- present in everybody. Um, and that's part of our personality. The other half of our personality is our childhood experiences in mid and late childhood and our adulthood experiences. And that's influenced a lot by our culture and by our peers and others. And, uh, and so personality certainly is influenced by that in a different kind of way. But, but my point is that the biological temperament part is still very important um, and important in childhood in particular in terms of how one reacts to childhood stresses and traumas. I see. Um, and, and so uh, how does substance use play into um, the development of, of mood disorders? Uh, a lot of people who I've, I've worked with um, uh, uh, have uh, some, bi- some bipolar symptoms as well as some substance use, and um, for them it can sometimes be hard to, to know uh, if they have bipolar I was wondering if you could speak about um, the overlap of the two. Yes, that's a difficult, difficult problem because statistically about 60% of people with bipolar disorder have substance abuse at some point in their lives. Uh, so if you were to um, have a policy of never diagnosing bipolar disorder and someone with substance abuse, you wouldn't diagnose it and the majority of people have it. On the other hand, substance abuse can certainly cause depression and mimic manic symptoms and impulsivity. Um, and many more people abuse substances who don't have bipolar disorder. Uh, uh, even normal people can, who have no mood disorder at all can have substance abuse. So it's a difficult um, problem. I think one way of looking at it is that uh, the, the, there's a difference in the genetics between the two conditions. And people with bipolar disorder have family members with bipolar disorder usually. And so one way of looking at someone who's substance abusing is to look at the family history. And if there is some bipolar disorder, that would increase the likelihood that that's part of the problem. Um, another aspect is that um, people who have uh, mania are more likely to be bipolar than not. Depression is more nonspecific and happen for lots of reasons and lots of substances. But, but mania is uh, much harder to be caused by substances. There are a few that can do it, like cocaine. So when, when you see somebody with frank mania, even if they are using substances, then the likelihood of bipolar disorder, I think, is quite high. Hmm. Well, this sounds like something that, that we should uh, get into more than we have to take a break for a moment. And we'll be back in, in a minute with one hour at a time. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. As our loved ones grow older, we often have questions about their future care and well-being. 
Today's senior citizens are faced with issues relating to health care, aging well, long-term care, and legal issues. For the answers, tune in to Senior Matters with host Nadir Wright. Nadir has spent much of his life providing answers to senior issues, such as help in the home, decisions, and making growing older a wonderful experience. Tune in to Senior Matters every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to Energy Medicine and Optimal Health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, and we're back now with One Hour at a Time. I'm your host, uh, Zev Schumann-Olivier, and I'm here with Dr. Nasir Gami, who is professor of psychiatry at Tufts Medical Center and the director of the Mood Disorder Program. Um, I, w- I wanted to actually just pick up uh, where we left off. I realized uh, speaking about um, bipolar disorder and, and substance use, um, and uh, um, and I wanted to ask, does one cause the the other? Um, people ask that question a lot. You know, is the is the drug use that that I'm doing causing me to have bipolar, or is it just making it worse? Well, I think that certainly there are cases where uh, drugs can cause mania. Um, steroids can cause mania. Cocaine can cause mania. If I think it's probably true that if you give high enough doses of intravenous steroids to almost anybody, at some point you would get mania. Um, but short of that, and when you think about the way most drugs are used, and especially if they're mostly pills, getting manic is probably mostly a sign that you, you have a susceptibility to it, that you're, you have some susceptibility to bipolar disorder if you get manic with drugs. We see this with antidepressants, for instance, a lot. So my own view on this is that if somebody gets manic on some kind of drug, it's not that the drug causes the mania. It's more that the drug reveals a susceptibility to the bipolar disorder. I see. So, um, so drugs can make bipolar disorder worse for people. Either that or they basically unmask it. Um, so it, it would have. It's there, and it's and it does, and it's uh, and it's affecting them anyway. Um, and the drug would just allow that to happen more. That, there's, there's that, and I think that happens with antidepressants, for instance. So we give antidepressants to people with bipolar disorder. If they already have the illness, they have more and more mood episodes, more and more depression over time. They actually get worse and worse on about one-third of patients, according to our research. But there are some people who actually don't get manic um, at all, um, or maybe uh, well, unless they are on antidepressants or on some other kinds of drugs. So if they have a susceptibility. It's like they're... Um, 
it's like they're swimming just below the surface, and then the drug pushes them over. But if, you, if they're not on the drugs, they'll stay just below the surface, and even, even though they might have the susceptibility to getting manic, they don't actually have the clinical symptoms. I see. Uh, now, what about cannabis? Does cannabis uh, increase susceptibility? Uh, that's a good question, Zev, and I know you're more of an expert on this than I am. Um, I'll tell you what my clinical experience is, though I don't, I don't know the science of it, the research on it as much. My clinical experience is that most people who abuse cannabis abuse other things at some point, and so it, it's usually a problem just in general. But if you have the theoretical person who only abuses cannabis, that certainly can increase paranoia. Uh, you can have drug interactions with drugs. Um, so, and it can probably cause depression. So I think in general it, it, it's a problem with mood. The other thing I, I always tell um, my patients is that when, when they take even alcohol, much less cannabis, uh, even socially, um, at, at a limited dose, not abusing them, uh, there's some research that shows that alcohol, for instance, can interfere with the, with the benefits of antidepressants and mood stabilizers for depression or mood illnesses. And so essentially you're interfering with the drugs we're trying to use to make, make you better, and then the drugs don't work. Can you tell us more about that? Because um, you know, some people will uh, say, "Well, I can have a, I can have a drink once a once a month. Yeah. Is that okay? I'm not don't have a problem." Like I said, there's some research on this. We need more research to be definitive. But there was one study, for instance, done in Mass General uh, about 10, 15 years ago, a study of Prozac for depression. And none of the people in the study were alcoholics or substance abusers because they were excluded if they were. But they were allowed to come in if they had you know normal amounts of alcohol use, like is culturally acceptable. But some people abstain. They don't drink alcohol at all, as you know. So when they compared those two groups in the outcomes, what they found was people who didn't drink alcohol at all, zero, had a better outcome with Prozac for depression than people who drank alcohol even just once a week. Wow. Yeah. Which, which you know, is, raises the question whether in some biological, pharmacological way, drinking at all interferes with benefits of antidepressants. Has that has that study ever been done with bipolar disorder? Um, I don't know, not not in that way. I don't think so. Um, not that I mean the studies, plenty of studies on it. That kind of analysis, I think, has not been done in that way. But I can tell you clinically, that's my 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 sense as well. That um, I tell my patients who are bipolar and are symptomatic that they should abstain from all alcohol and any drugs for at least six months to a year. They should pretend that they're pregnant just not take anything while we try to get them better. Once they get better, you know, they might be able to resume social drinking, and if they don't have an alcohol problem, then they're able to do so. Um, but most people are able to do that, just like most women who get pregnant are able to completely stop using alcohol for nine months. I see. And how would um, people with bipolar disorder know if they are having a problem again when they, when they pick up and start that? And they try after the trial's over. Right. You know, once you get well, say you get totally well, you get on lithium or some mood stabilizer that really work well for you six months later or so, and you start drinking again, then what we see if they're not able to do well is often that their mood symptoms get worse again right after they start socially drinking, say. Uh, and some people just need to be completely abstinent long-term. Um, but I would say for most people, um, once they get well, they were able to drink alcohol in a social way without any problem. But it's a big difference, drinking alcohol two or three times a week when you're completely normal in your mood versus drinking alcohol two or three times a week when you're depressed. It seems to have a different effect in the body, I think. I see. And, and now, 
Um, can you speak to a little bit about uh, the effects of mixing alcohol with lithium, though? Because I know that some people have concerns about that. You mean when someone's well and, and otherwise stable? When, when someone's drinking and binge drinking. Oh, binge drinking, certainly, yeah. Well, binge drinking is different. Um, I think when you're binge drinking, you run into the problem of dehydration, which can increase lithium levels and, and make cause someone to get toxic on lithium. What is the result of that? And that can lead to seizures, kidney failure, and even coma or death. Uh, people would need to have dialysis uh, immediately if that happened. Um, so if you get really dehydrated, uh, that's an issue. Of course, if you binge drink, you can. there's a risk of coma with alcohol, and that combined with lithium would, would be an increased risk. Um, but if, if it's a, just a regular or small amount of alcohol use uh, combined with regular doses of lithium, there isn't any inherent um, problem with that. They, they don't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily lead to a problem with the lithium in that setting. I see. You're saying as long as there isn't a history of a, of a substance use disorder as well. Right, right. I think the problem is not so much drinking alcohol and lithium pharmacologically. It's more excessive amounts of alcohol or binging on it that's more of a problem in terms of how it might interact with lithium. I see. Okay, and, how, and, and whether or not it might lead to other drug use again. That's right. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for for answering that question in a lot of detail. I appreciate it. Um, so you mentioned something about uh, uh, about um, uh, switching to having taking medicines that kind of release the ability for mania to come forward. There was a study that you had done uh, a couple of years ago with some folks at Cambridge Health Alliance and um, that was looking at people who... Um, who had substance use disorders um, and who were and depression who were put on antidepressants and found that people were more likely to to have mania um, mm -hmm. from antidepressants if they were using substances as well. I, right. I, I don't remember the exact details. I was wondering if you could tell us about that because sure. it was relevant too. Yes, that's that's a that's a good um, good point to make as well because there's this basically brings up the issue of substance abuse not directly itself as causing a problem but indirectly by being a mediator or, or a, a risk factor for other problems. So antidepressants can cause mania. This isn't this is a uh, an idea that most people accept, though among some people it's controversial. The question might be how much do they cause mania, which ones, and so on. Some people think the newer ones don't do it as much. Uh, my own view and my own research suggests that the newer ones cause mania as well, and uh, though some of them may do it less than some of the older antidepressants, they all can. Then the, the uh, in our research, what we looked at was predictors, uh, things that seemed to make it more likely for somebody to get manic if they got antidepressants. And uh, among the things that we looked at, that what stood out the most was a history of substance abuse, having had substance abuse in the past. And um, that increased the risk of getting manic on an antidepressant many, many fold, like an almost eightfold risk, increased risk, which is a huge effect. Other people have found the same effect, so now this has been shown uh, repeatedly. And I think what it tells us is that uh, there's something going on biologically. Maybe having had substance abuse does something to the brain that makes it more susceptible to getting manic when exposed to drugs that can cause mania like antidepressants. So it's a, it's an observation that might be useful for people to think about when they're considering using antidepressants in bipolar disorder. If there's past substance abuse, maybe it's best to avoid antidepressants um, more so. Okay. Um, that sounds like a good thing for for um, 
people to think about when they're uh, thinking about starting antidepressant treatment that there might be a, a risk to it. Yes. There are other risk factors that have been shown, for instance, having the hyperthymic temperament, the mild manic symptoms that we talked about, people who are rapid cycling, who have lots and lots of mood episodes, four or more in a year, um, they're all more prone to getting manic on antidepressants or getting worse on antidepressants. My own sense of this is that probably about one-third of people get worse on antidepressants. Maybe a very small group, about 20% or less, get better, and most people get no benefit at all. And even though antidepressants are widely used in our culture, widely prescribed for bipolar disorder, the most commonly prescribed class of medicine in bipolar disorder, the evidence that they actually work is very low. And the evidence that they don't work or they may actually harm patients is, is appreciable. So um, when someone, I know that people who are bipolar will often find themselves for um, more time out of the year feeling depressed than feeling than feeling. Uh, manic or hypomanic. Um, uh, what do you recommend to people when they're when they're feeling um, when when they're feeling depressed like that? Um, if not, if they can't use antidepressants, right? Well, I mean, the mood stabilizers, the drugs that do work for bipolar disorder, work because they prevent depression and they prevent mania. So, if you get on medications like lithium or lamotrigine or Depakote, valproic acid, or Tegretol, carbamazepine. These are the four standard mood stabilizers. If you get on those kinds of medications, they should help one have fewer depressive episodes over time. So they actually do decrease depression, unlike antidepressants, which have never been shown to prevent depression in bipolar disorder. Um, nonetheless, people can be left with some depression, or they might have breakthrough depression, like you said. Well, they might be on one of these mood stabilizers and then still have a depressive period for a while. Um, when that happens, if they're on one mood stabilizers, we know that adding a second one can treat that depression and make a future one less likely. So often they need multiple mood stabilizers. That's the way I would usually recommend treatment. Occasionally, if a depression is really severe, they can even get electroconvulsive treatment or antidepressants. If someone's you know really severely depressed and needs to, there's a risk of suicide, for instance, in, a, in an immediate uh, week or two then one can, should do, as Lyndon Johnson once said, there are times in poker and politics when you need to put all your cards in. You, you do everything. But um, short of that scenario, usually using multiple mood stabilizers is a good way to treat the depression. And even if they have mild depression left over, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I, I think is, is uh, something to think about, which I grew out of my work on the positive aspects of depression and mania, is that if you have mild depression, there are some benefits to that in terms of being more empathic and more realistic. And, and many people um, accept it and function with it. Um, even though some, many people in our, in our profession say that you should treat patients till they have zero depression symptoms left over, I'm not sure how, um, firstly, I'm not sure how realistic that is because our drugs don't work that well. And I'm not sure how beneficial that is either. Um, well, maybe we could we could go there for a minute and, and just talk about the the empathy that that you were that you just mentioned. Um, what did, what did, what do you mean by empathy exactly? Well, um, I mean uh, the classic definition, to put it colloquially, of putting oneself in another person's shoes or seeing things from another person's perspective, uh, caring about other people more than in a, in a superficial kind of way. Uh, as Martin Luther King once said, I can't be what I want, want to be until you become who you want to be. 
really viewing the world that way as a mutual interconnection of people so that for you to get what you want, everybody else has to as well. Um, that very other-oriented perspective um, is not natural. It doesn't come to human beings naturally. We naturally tend to be selfish and self-oriented, and, and uh, it's normal to be that way. But what's interesting is that in, in um, a few studies of depression, people who have depression score higher on empathy rating scales than people who are not depressed or who have other psychiatric conditions but not depression. Uh, so people with depression seem to have a, a more of a sense of the suffering of others, of the feelings of others. Um, and uh, I can say anecdotally, a lot of my patients uh, tell me this as well, um, but there's some research that suggests this. Uh, there's also interesting brain and neuroscience research that shows that about 10% of the brain consists of mirror neurons. These are neurons that fire or that get stimulated when somebody else does something, like moving an arm. So if you move your arm, I have neurons in my brain that would fire when I would normally move my arm. Even though I'm not moving my arm, they, they fire. So it's, it's as if... Yes, you I'm, my brain I'm, just by moving your hand. Yeah, your your hand moves my brain's hand. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm empathizing with you. So there's a biology to empathy. Um, it's not a it's not just a purely speculative psychological notion uh, either. I see. So so this mirror neuron concept. This this is if you see something out happening to somebody else and you, your brain feels like it's happening to you as well? That's right. Part of the brain. Part of the brain that would have fired if it had happened to you still fires when it happens to someone else. And there's a lot of psychology research as well looking at how people react when someone else is doing something. You know, like if someone gets hurt, we wince. If someone smiles, we smile. Uh, this all happens very quickly, very intuitively, very non-verbally. And it's all part of the the ability to empathize with other people. So what happens if people don't have that? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, there's a range, obviously. As with, with all uh, personality traits, there's a range. Uh, most of us are in the middle. Some have more, some have less. As you know, those who have very little empathy or hardly any are the kinds of people that when they're extreme with psychiatry, we label them with terms like sociopathy or antisocial personality. It's interesting that when someone is in the manic state, at that time, they, their empathy appears to be decreased as well. There's a decreased empathy during mania. And during depression, it's the opposite. It's, it's quite heightened. Um, although, it's, it, again, mild to moderate depression seems to be where it's very heightened. If you have very severe depression, then you have, again, some focus on oneself and a decrease of empathy towards others. So uh, in these different conditions, you have more or less empathy. And um, when there's too little, you know, I think you have a scenario where someone is unable to engage socially with others as much. Relationships become more difficult. Um, Intersocial skills are low. And, and, of course, that probably reflects some of what we talk about with the autism spectrum as well. Um, so empathy is really an important feature of many different conditions. But in terms you mentioned of, the autism spectrum. Maybe you yeah. could just talk about what is, how does empathy re relate to that, and what exactly is that for those who are unclear? Well, autism is, in children, it's, it's the, the definition given for a term used for pe children who have trouble relating to other people. Um, they 
aren't dis diagnosed with autism if they have depression, because depression also leads to problems with relating to other people uh, or other conditions like schizophrenia. But assuming they have no other problems and their only issue is that they seem to just be disconnected socially from other people, um, that's sometimes diagnosed as autism. And then as they grow up into adulthood, it's, it's sometimes called Asperger's syndrome or some variant on that, that, that as long as, again, they don't have depression or, or other conditions. Um, it's just, uh, you know, the phrase is, is in, has been in the media a lot. People have been speculating about whether vaccines can cause it or things like that. But we have to remember that uh, saying that you have autism because you don't have much empathy to others or, or poor interpersonal skills is, that's, is like saying that every time you have a fever, you have fever illness. Fever can happen with lots of other causes, too. So um, I think this just gets back to saying that empathy is uh, an important feature of lots of different problems that people have, uh, too much or too little of it. And, and too, too much of it, which is not a bad thing, really, seems to happen with depression. And, and uh, you speak about uh, empathy being kind of one of the most important things that people who are clinicians can can have and, and maybe also family members as well. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could speak a little bit about um, how, why it's effective and important. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think it's hard to be a good clinician if you don't have some empathy for others because your job is to try to help other people. And for many people, it comes naturally. You know, maybe they have a lot of mirror neurons and, and another biology of empathy is oxytocin, which is a hormone that... Uh, in animal studies, when there's a lot of oxytocin receptors, animals seem to be much more social and loving and caring, and so it might be associated with empathy. So some of us just biologically, for various reasons, might be more empathic towards others. Many of us have some empathy, uh, naturally, but the rest, but we also can grow it. We can try to have more of it uh, through our own educational experiences. Uh, many people in the meditation community, the Buddhist tradition, for instance, are trying to enhance their connection to the world around them, and that's in a way try, a way of trying to increase their empathy. Um, and it helps a lot in, in terms of appreciating, I think, life and other people and helping them if one wants to do that. I In, in First Rate Madness, I write about how Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi both had severe depression and even made suicide attempts in childhood. And uh, how their politics, I think, is a politics of radical empathy, which makes sense if you think that they have had depression. It's a way of saying really in a very uh, uh, radical way that uh, we shouldn't try to defeat our enemies. We should try to win them over. And this nonviolence is, is the prescription for doing that. It's interesting because one of the things that uh, people often have said to people who have depression is, you care too much what other people think. Right. Um, and uh, um, and I'm, I'm wondering, is that, is that the flip side of, of being right. sensitive um, right. to empathy? Right. And um, there probably, one can have too much empathy, maybe, and, and that could be a problem. Uh, it can even maybe, we don't really know the directions of, of cause here. You know, depression can cause increased empathy, can maybe increased empathy can cause depression. Um, so, you know, the old Aristotelian concept that uh, a virtue is having a moderate amount of some trait, that if you have too much or too little, it becomes a vice. Uh, to some extent, that's the running theme of, of my ideas um, in the first-rate madness, too. 
But what I'm saying is if you have a mild to moderate amount of manic or depressive symptoms, it's actually useful in many ways for people who want to be leaders or who are leaders in times of crisis. Um, but having too much of those symptoms is obviously hurtful, uh, and, but also having none of them uh, has, uh, gives one some limitations in life. So if, you're, if you are somebody who's in treatment for bipolar disorder and taking medication, do, do you still have access to, to you know, some of those mild states? Yes. In, in fact, I think uh, it's important for people to realize, uh, because a lot of people avoid taking medications out of mistaken views on this, it's important for people to realize that most of our medications do not affect people in such a way that they have no symptoms anymore of, uh, of, of their problem. So if they have depression, then our drugs can take them from having very severe depression to having mild depression. Sometimes, you know, they have very little or none left, but frequently people have some depression symptoms. Same thing with mania. And, uh, and so, you know, what we do is we treat people so that their severe symptoms are gone. That's good. They're left often with mild symptoms, which can sometimes be a problem, but also can have some, some benefits. Well, what do you recommend people to do for the, the symptoms that are um, remaining after the medication treatment um, that they don't feel or maybe they have some that are positive but some that aren't? Yeah. Um, what do you recommend people to do? What kind of therapy or, or yeah. what work do they, can they do for themselves? I think this is, a, this is an important question. I, I think at one level we, we have to ask people whether they want to do anything for those things. Um, a lot of people, for instance, a lot of creative uh, artists, uh, for instance, are quite fine with having mild manic symptoms and mild depressive symptoms. So if they're fine with it, maybe we should just leave them alone and let them live their lives that way. Uh, if they want to treat sometimes their symptoms, whether it's mild mania or mild depression, uh, especially with, uh, well, in general, I'd say that it's, our medications don't seem to work all that well for very mild symptoms. Um, and so I often recommend psychotherapies or counseling, uh, other things that might be useful or uh, support groups, uh, which have been shown to help patients like the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. Uh, yoga may be useful in some alternative treatments like that. Uh, this is actually an open question and a good one that maybe more research will help us answer. But, but for now, those are the kinds of options that uh, come up that might help people. Does diet make a difference or sleep? Certainly. Monitoring or any yeah. of those kind of lifestyle choices? Of course. Uh, exercise is important, can very well help. Mild depression symptoms are studies that have shown that. Diet is probably important in, in terms of some things like uh, omega-3 fatty acid intake through for fish. From fish seems to be associated with decreased depression um, and other things may be useful. Um, so, yes, I mean, have, paying attention as much as possible to lifestyle like diet and exercise is important as well. Um, so someone asked me recently, uh, you know, if it were okay to take a job that involved a lot of travel, you know, traveling through a lot of time zones when, when we know that, um, well, I've had the experience that, that some people have had a lot of difficulty when they've, when they've made major time zone changes um, and have had stable bipolar disorder. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Is there, is there an amount of time zones that, that, uh, that, that you, uh, you, you say it should be the limit, or um, is it uh, just uh, you know, making sure you get your, get your rest throughout the process? Um, can you talk about that, that just the, right. the risk of travel? Right. Well, I think, you know, there's the ideal and there's the practical. Ideally, people with bipolar disorder should avoid having jobs that involve time zone travel as well as night, night, night work. I have patients, though, who, who are in both of those scenarios, um, like an international businessman who has to travel, you know, across time zones across the world. If that's your, your life in, in a practical way, that's, what, that's the way it is. 
in, in this case of that patient, every time that person travels, he has a depression uh, or a manic episode. So it's almost almost predictable each time. Um, one way to manage it is to try to maintain the same sleep amount as you try to as you're moving across time zones. Um, melatonin can help with that. Uh, melatonin receptor medications, a few exist, can help with that. Um, or just taking other sleeping medications can help. Um, other than that, we don't have a lot of tools uh, to, that we know of that can help with travel-related mood symptoms. Um, so, uh, okay. you know, it's, it's, it's a problem that's uh, hard to solve. I see. And, um, and uh, what about smoking cigarettes? Does that affect bipolar disorder, make people more impulsive in any way or more suicidal? Um, I don't think in those ways. Uh, smoking, some, there's some evidence that smoking cigarettes can lead to the increased metabolism of psychiatric medications, probably not drugs like lithium, but some of the medications that we use uh, may be decreased in the amount that, that is in the body if someone smokes. Essentially, it makes the liver metabolize those medications a little more quickly. Uh, so in some ways, smoking might lead to less benefit just because the amount of drug in the system is a little lower, although... Um, that's not definitive. Um, I tell smoking clearly has an anti-anxiety effect, which is one reason people smoke, and then, so there might be a psychological benefit from that. Uh, it probably doesn't harm people psychologically directly in any other way. But what I would tell people is that uh, with bipolar disorder, you have about a 10 to 15 year decreased lifespan. The major increased risk is cardiovascular disease and suicide. But the cardiovascular disease risk is two to th- about twofold higher than the general population because of the biological effects of severe depression and mania. So to smoke on top of that is really uh, a major medical problem that's going to decrease the lifespan of a person and, and, and let them have uh, more, more cardiovascular illness. Than, uh, and so it's best to, to avoid smoking mainly for that reason. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, if you haven't developed... Um, I work with a lot of, of young adults um, uh, or and at times adolescents uh, and, and their families. Um, if, you, if you haven't developed bipolar disorder yet, um, but you have uh, mood symptoms, uh, how do you know if, you, if you're going to have bipolar disorder? You had the benefit in your book of having people's entire life history right. um, to be able to look back and say, oh, from this course of illness, I can see this is bipolar disorder. I think right. people want right. to know. Well, I, don't, I, I want to not develop it or I want to, right. not, to not have you know, episodes. How, how can I, how can I um, figure this out early um, uh, and do everything yeah. I can for my family or for, or for myself? Right. Um, I wonder what, what you recommend. You know, I think that's, that this is another great question and maybe an, among the most important questions for the future of psychiatry. Um, as you know, there's a lot of very controversial work being done on what's called prodromes or the beginnings of um, schizophrenia in particular, but a lot of this relates, could relate to mood illnesses as well. And uh, some of that research shows that if you take uh, teenagers with psychotic-type symptoms or, or other psychiatric symptoms who come from families of people who have schizophrenia, and then you start treating them, even with simple things like omega-3 fatty acids, for instance, not, not necessarily antipsychotic medications, they stay well for a number of years, uh, which uh, is better than is usually the case. Um, there's, um, in bipolar disorder, probably the best study on this was one from Pittsburgh a few years ago, 
where they took kids who had mild, like you're kind of describing, mild manic symptoms, not enough to be diagnosed but with bipolar disorder, very brief, and they were average about age 10 or so, I think. They followed them for about five years till they were about age 15 at the time they published some of their, their data, and they found that about uh, one-third of those kids had developed full-blown bipolar disorder. And if they had a family history of bipolar disorder, one half of them had developed full-blown bipolar disorder. So I think the answer to the question is that if you have abnormal mood symptoms as a child, um, then that they're manic-type symptoms, then there's at least a 50-50 chance that, that you're dealing with bipolar disorder. When you say manic-like symptoms, you're specifically referring to the, to the mania symptoms, not to the depressive symptoms. Right, meaning more the hyperactivity, overactivity, uh, impulsivity, decreased need for sleep uh, type symptoms, increased energy. So sometimes in those situations, people will have symptoms like that or perhaps even have had episodes of mania or maybe episodes of psychosis, and they, they may be... Um, they may be declining medication for the reasons you might have said or for other mm-hmm. reasons. Um, I was wondering if you had advice for, you know, their family members um, or for people who are in their community for, uh, um, you know, how to how to approach that. Because I know often those family members will carry a lot of anxiety right. um, and concern uh, about their loved one. Right. I think I think that the, 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 obviously this is a controversial question. And, you know, there's concerns about antidepressant use in children, which can cause suicidality. There's concerns of neuroleptic or antipsychotic use, which works for mania, but cause weight gain and can cause cardiovascular risks, and those may cause medical problems uh, in, in even the medium term for children. Um, and we don't really have a lot of research yet to say definitively whether those children should be treated with mood stabilizers like adults, uh, drugs like lithium, for instance, although that's my hunch that that's probably the most effective treatment. So given the fact that a lot of our treatments cause problems in kids and those that are most helpful, uh, probably most helpful, haven't been studied enough, um, I think it's uh, understandable that families and others would, uh, would hesitate. Um, my own view is that many of the medications that children receive, especially antidepressants and antipsychotics, cause, uh, a, cause a good deal of risk and one has to be very careful with them and we probably overuse them. And those that are probably most helpful, like for bipolar disorder, drugs like lithium, for instance, are underused in children. And I think we need to um, think seriously about uh, how to use them more, more, more so and more carefully. Um, so for now, I would say, you know, uh, my hunch is that it's probably best to get treated if, in those situations with the right kinds of medications like mood stabilizers, and that probably would later decrease the severity and likelihood of a full-blown bipolar disorder, a lot like the prodromal studies in schizophrenia seem to suggest for that condition. Um, but uh, given that we don't know that for sure, um, I think uh, if families want to wait and avoid medications, and that can be a reasonable judgment as well. Okay. And, and even when... And are, are those risks the same when people are young adults? Well, I think once you... You know, the average age of onset for bipolar disorder is 19, and it's been that for almost 100 years. And it's very well proven that right around late adolescence into early young adulthood, full-blown mania and uh, obvious bipolar disorder is, is, is often common. I think at that point, uh, treatment um, is much more strongly necessary. Uh, also, we have lots of research in, in adults, including that age, that show that the mood stabilizers work. 
And we know if you don't get treated, the risk of having another mood episode is extremely high, almost definitive, almost near in, uh, 100% within a few years. So, so I think at that point it makes sense for people to take lithium and take mood stabilizers and to, and to try to be consistent with it. Although I know my own experience is that young adults have a hard time making those kinds of decisions and sticking with medications. Okay. Okay. Um... I wanted to just bring uh, back to one more point, which is you talked about creativity being mm -hmm. a, a really positive thing um, in your book, uh, First Rate Madness. And um, I, I wanted to uh, to uh, thank you for your creativity in, in putting this all, in, in, in putting these books together and, and weaving history um, uh, so that we can, uh, we can have... Uh, clear images in our mind about how to understand some of these things that, are, that I think are hard to understand. And um, you also talked about uh, uh, depressive realism versus having positive illusions, saying people um, can often have, people that don't have depression often have more positive illusion. Um, I hope it's not positive illusion, but I, I very much appreciated uh, everything that you've shared with us today. Thank you, Zeb. Thank you for those comments. and I enjoyed talking with you. Okay. Um, so, so again, uh, uh, thank you for talking. This is uh, Nasir Gamey, um, and he has a, a new book that uh, has recently come out called The First Rate Madness, um, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. And uh, I'm very grateful for the time that you spent today uh, speaking to, um, to myself and to um, those of us who are uh, working in this area and you. have family members in this area. Thank you very much. You're welcome, and thank you, Zoe. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One Hour at a Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.